Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, and you're listening to Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 22nd of March. The year is 2023. And last time we talked about malic enzyme in some detail. Now, for those who paid close attention, I know that's all of you. You'll notice I did not bring up anything about epigenetics. That's because I'm laying a firm uh, ground here. A very strong architectonic, so that I can then introduce where the epigenetic alteration, a particular disease state associated with the immune response, can be invaded. So that's what I'm doing. I know I sometimes explain what I'm going to do before I do it, and sometimes I do it ex post facto. This is the latter. Okay. So let's get back to ME for a minute, and I'm going to bring back in epigenetics. <clears throat> now, and I, I do apologize for the cough, but I'm really, really trying to control it, and I'm not going to let it interrupt all the material I'm trying to uh, lecture on. So bear with me as I get through this uh, cold. Okay, so ME1 inhibition induces a metabolic reprogramming and when that occurs it can increase redox homeostasis when it's in a pathological or pathophysiological state however if that redox homeostasis is maintained in a tumor cell by enhancing for example uh, the production of, re of um, enzymes that will remove reactive oxygen because of the synthesis of NADPH, which is necessary to remove these partially reduced forms of molecular oxygen, <clears throat> then it would actually aid in the progression of disease, you see. So we have to remember that we're on this very tight knife's edge between if we're talking about the tumor or the immune system and whether or not it is um, a positive effect of ME1 on the pathophysiology, meaning that the tumor would progress, or if it is a negative effect on the pathophysiology <coughs> because ME1 would be working in the T lymphocyte, for example, and in that instance, maintaining low levels of reactive oxygen would promote T-cell function. Now, there's a lot of other uh, constituents to that argument that I could lay down, and I will later. So the synthesis of ME1 inhibition is what I'm going to do here. And I'm going to describe it on cellular metabolism. And what we're talking about here is this paper where they're doing metabolomics in a cell line, a cancer cell line, after they knocked down the activity of ME1. So they got the obvious cellular metabolite level changes after 48 or 72 hours of using a small interfering RNA after transfection for ME1. Now, consistent with those isotopic profiling experiments I went through last lecture, and I think the one before, 
malate and fumarate levels increased after ME1 depletion. Glucose 6-phosphate, ribose 5-phosphate increased after ME1 depletion. And we know why. It's because glycolysis was turned down due to a lack of pyruvate recycling from the mitochondria to the cytosol, we call <coughs> Indeed, pyruvate and lactate levels increased significantly after ME1 inhibition. Now, the authors of this paper contend that glycolysis and the oxidative pentosphosphate shunt are therefore enhanced as a result of ME1 inhibition. And they argue that since ME1 inhibition, because of the siRNA, induced cellular metabolic reprogramming, which was observed because of the, uh, the isotopic signatures, remember, on the various intermediates in the pathways. Perhaps they're suggesting that ADPH producing enzymes and the expression of senescence-related genes could be associated. And what are they talking about here? They're saying that ME1 depletion increased a CD kinase known as N1A and the heme oxygenase 1 transcript levels. Okay, so let's get into this. <clears throat> they examined whether the presence of glucose could affect expression of CD kinase N1A and HO1. And the results suggested that both those protein levels did increase. That means transcription translation occurred after siRNA knockdown of ME1. And they believe that suggests that ME1 then the knockdown of it must stimulate the expression of those two senescence-associated genes. Now, they also found that the heme oxidase expression was enhanced at glucose-depleted media, but that not the same effect on the CDK and 1A. Remember, that's a cell cycle kinase, right? Okay. What they see overall in is that ME1 inhibition does affect redox homeostasis by regulating glucose metabolism. Now, I don't know where they really get that conclusion because they're looking at two genes that are really not linked to glucose metabolism. So when they're de glucose depleting and they want to look at the expression and still doing the knockdown of ME1. See, what they're trying to do here is ask the question, um, in the tumor system, does ME1 play a role in glucose-limiting conditions? Because remember, if you have glucose limitation, <coughs> you presumably are going to have a slowing down of tumor cell division. Because remember, you're expecting this to be a Varberg effect tumor. Okay. High rampant glycolysis without it without the typical involvement of TCA ETC for ATP synthesis. Right? So they're depleting the glucose and asking what happens when you lack down the ME1. So to me, those are two parameters that okay, it's okay they're doing them together, but where's their control? Well, their control was when they had 
glucose-supplied medium. And the glucose-supplied medium showed the effect on both CDKN1A and HO1. They say that the knockdown of the malic enzyme 1, that's the cytoplasmic one making NADPH, gave them higher expression of both of those genes okay, at the protein level. But they're saying when they removed glucose, that it only had an effect um, on HO1 expression. Remember, that's heme oxygenase. Now, I can go into whole detail about that enzyme, and I will. But I want you to understand that neither one of those proteins are directly associated with bioenergetics. But they're more regulating the stress response, sense-restrictive. So by that, I would argue you're removing the couple of the stress response to the bioenergetics, and that's fine. But to draw the conclusion that ME1 inhibition regulates glucose metabolism from that data, I don't think the conclusion follows the evidence. Okay, unless there's more that, that they want to tell us, which is possible. Okay. I mean, in the in the full flow of the paper, we're going to get more into the paper. Now, they're saying at this point the results suggest that ME1 inhibition disturbs cellular metabolism. Okay. That you could argue that point of and they're saying that is involved in redox balance because they know from other previous work this is what occurs in cancer. And they're also arguing that glucose depletion will increase. What do you think that might happen? The reductive carboxylation reaction. And that, that member is probably carboxylase. And you know that can enhance because of the previous lecture I just gave you, ME1-dependent glutamine metabolism. Remember, we had the alpha-ketal glutarate shunt. Transaminations going to glutamate, and glutamate coming in from the removal of amino groups from glutamine. Right? So, in glucose-restricted conditions, these HCT-116 cells, these are cancer cells, that are cultured in normal RPM media with various concentrations of glucose from zero all the way up to standard, two, two grams per liter. They looked at cell viability, 24, 48, 72 hours, and all of that was then compared to the normal medium, you know, two grams of glucose. And they found that cell growth was suppressed after 48 hours in the 0.2 gram, that's one-tenth glucose concentration. And it was still slightly suppressed after 72 hours, even in the 0.5 gram. And it was suppressed in less than 24 hours when there was no glucose in the medium. Okay, so they're titrating um, negatively, or I should say reciprocally, with glucose concentration. Okay. Now... In order for you to understand this, let me explain a few things. The reprogramming of gene expression that contributes to tumorigenesis and cancer progression is going to involve not just bioenergetics and not just stress responses like reactive oxygen. It's going to involve an entire retooling 
of an epigenomic alteration of genes which are expressed to control cell fate. And these would include apoptotic, autophagic, and then some of those more nuanced cell fate sequelae, such as senescence, because glucose deprivation can lead to senescence, but also, too, because of the corruption of the mitochondrial membrane with glucose deprivation, ferritosis and necrotosis, okay, which would then involve introducing a very a highly elevated pro-inflammatory inflammatory, a pro-inflammatory cytokine response. Okay? So keep that in mind. The gene regulatory machinery and all the chromatin-associated factors in tumors require an integration of the environmental signals that are coming from the tumor stromal environment and the tumor extra-stromal environment. So there's a great deal of interplay with intermediary metabolites. Okay? So ferritosis, which again is a very narrowly defined regulated cell death. So we're not going to call that PCD. We're going to call that RCD regulated cell death. Remember this from previous lectures. Now, different from all the other cell death uh, paradigms. It's different morphologically, genetically, and biochemically. In fact, a great deal of human diseases, including cancer, are linked to an abnormality in ferritosis because of this enhanced pro-inflammatory response not just in a tumor microenvironment, but in healthy cells as well that could be associated with that tumor microenvironment, such as endothelia. Okay? So there's a relationship between ferritosis and oncogenic RAS. RAS, of course, contributes directly to the induction of ferritosis through what's known as the RAS-BRAF. Now, the BRAF is a proto-oncogene. And what is it? It's another series three ending kinase. So you've got RAS, BRAF, MAP2 kinase, MEC. Now, MEC, of course, is the mitogen activated protein kinase kinase. Putting this all together, you have a MAPK ERK. The ERK, again, is the mitogen activated protein kinase itself. Now, there's a role of tumor suppressor gene activity here. The one we're going to talk about, there's several, but the one we're going to talk about is TP53. And that's linked to ferritosis. TP53 represses the cysteine, I mean, that's the dimer of cysteine, glutamate transporter, and particularly the solute carrier family 7, membrane 11. Now, remember this in previous lectures? This is called SLC7A11. <coughs> that regulates expression of glutathione because of bringing in cysteine, by call. So that's going to promote ferritosis. So there's a communication between epigenetic modifications and metabolic pathways that are going to be crossing over here 
between ferritosis and tumorigenesis. Now, I'm going to remind you that air, that you can have anaerobic metabolism like glycolysis, which doesn't, anaerobic metabolism simply means it doesn't require oxygen. So there's no electrotransport chain reducing molecular oxygen, right? But when you have glycolysis in the presence of oxygen, that was originally called the Warburg effect. And Warburg, I'm saying, it's trying to say it's in German. It's a, it's spelled W-A-R-B-U-R-G, right? So they, sometimes people call it Warburg effect. I was corrected once by a, uh, a German student. And I, never, I never forgot that correction. It was probably 30 years ago. Warburg effect. Observations in various cancers have indicated that there is a change of cellular metabolism with significant changes of the TCA cycle. And this is going to involve, of course, oxidative circulation of iron. When I say oxidative circulation, that means in the presence of an oxygen-rich environment, you're going to be dealing with iron at either the ferrous or ferric level. Those two oxidation states. Okay. Now, you know that iron is an absolutely critical element necessary for cell replication, metabolism, and growth. Now, there's many reasons for this. For one, iron component and heme, right? Now, let me remind you the fetid reaction is an important part of ferritosis, in which the lipid peroxidation, which is what goes down to ferritosis, is mediated by carbon and oxygen-centered radicals. And that's initiated by the accumulation of free intracellular iron. Particularly ferrous iron donates an electron in a reaction with hydrogen peroxide to produce the hydroxyl radical now, that's a very potent reactive oxygen species, Ross, right? Hydroxyl radical. That's an anion. Now, this reaction not only damages, as you might guess, associated membrane lipids and protein, such as in the mitochondrial membrane, but it also causes direct oxidative damage to DNA, DNA both in the mitochondria and in the nucleus. So the release of free iron catalyzed by, now here's where this comes in, heme oxygenase will generate reactive oxygen in the mitochondrial membrane, because that's where that enzyme is functional, and it will lead to ferritosis against, this is classically found in the literature, a doxorubicin-treated cardiomyopathy. That indicates that inference of ferritosis is feasible as a novel strategy for the treatment of cardiomyopathy as well as cancer. <clears throat> so epigenetic regulators have recently been linked to the induction of ferritosis and, as we've been saying for several lectures, oncogenesis. So combined, these provide comprehensive and maybe more refined or focused mechanism of how to study ferritosis targeting tumors. So inducing ferritosis in this particular pharmacotherapeutic paradigm 
so as to destroy tumor or destroy tumorigenesis. Okay. The epigenetic controls in veritosis, which are uh, plenum and myriad, will therefore possibly prevent a new direction for pharmacotherapy. Okay. Both in cardiovascular disease and in cancer. Okay. So let me check my time here because I want to do something. I want to stop this. Yes, I've got 10 minutes. Okay. So we're, I've set the stage now for a great deal of subsequent lectures, like I always do. I'm going to talk about this whole heme oxygenase, and I'm also going to bring in a great deal of more information on the CDK uh, protein and what's how those two uh, potentially interact in cell cycle progression, sometimes leading to tumorigenesis, sometimes leading to ferritosis. Okay. That's the heads up. But right now I want to go into something else. Okay. I want to finish this 10 minutes here with this particular um, brief discussion of a pseudo paradox. <clears throat> okay. So the regulation of eukaryotic gene expression highly organized in the level of you know, primary sequence and then the complementarity of the transcript messenger RNA. Of course, following that, the translation of the polypeptide in which the amino acid sequence read from the amino to the carboxy terminus is actually encoded by the nucleic acid nucleotide sequence. Right? Now, that's the central process. It's ex executed by subcellular organization, where transcription is basically endonuclear. And after processing of the primary transcript, the translation, which is either cytosolic, ribosomal assembly, or endoplasmic reticulum-associated ribosomal mechanics. So the unique transcription of individual DNA coding sequences is therefore organized by cis-acting promoter and enhancer elements visited by highly organized transcription factor complexes that specifically bind in trans to the DNA response elements and the transcript is generated according to base pair fidelity to sequence with semi-canonical start and stop signatures. However, <coughs> Covalent modification of DNA, RNA, and nucleosomal histone protein, particularly lysine, but other amino acid residues as well, with either a, a methyl group or acetate, plus, as you know, several other cellular metabolites found in intermediary metabolism. Now add antisense microRNA and long non-coding RNAs, all of which may be written into the transcriptional and post-transcriptional processes that may quantitatively, qualitatively, relationally, or even modally alter the transcriptome. And of course, the resultant proteome in response to cellular environmental communication networks. Now, what are these? These are epigenetic phenomena. 
and they further require specific protein and lipid readers that may act only semi-conservatively according to polarity and valence relative to contribution to a new net transcriptome. <coughs> Finally, the epigenetic authorship and the molecular readers may be inherited through cell division or they might be erased before there is a shift, even in one cell cycle. Final result of that entire process is both plastic and elastic, <coughs> obviously cell-specific, in association with temporality. So while it is not stochastic, means purely random, it may not represent, nor adhere to, any pattern of recognition such that outcome predictability ultimately is at best uncertain. You see how this is a pseudo paradox that we're dealing with. Because finally you could say, nevertheless, living systems generated, we as we know, only from progenitor life will grow, develop, um, differentiate, reproduce possibly, and then senesce until death with remarkable species specific uniformity. So, with all of that in mind that I just said, what I want you to keep in your mind when we're going through the normal physiology, normal biochemistry, and then we're moving over to when I say normal. <clears throat> it could be in a pathophysiological state, but we're not describing any epigenetic retailering yet. But then when I cross over into that paradigm of epigenetic modification of gene expression and just gene expression here, you understand that that presents a pseudo-paradox. And I just explained it to you. What is the pseudo-paradox then? Well, you have two conflicting premises, or if you will, you have a thesis and an antithesis. The thesis is all the canonical organization of gene expression, <coughs> involving transcription factors and transcription factor complexes, and the suite of interactions that occur between the nucleus, the mitochondrial genome, as well as all the endomembranous system functioning to coordinate the trafficking of normal flow of control over gene expression, and then ultimately protein synthesis and allosteric modification of protein activity, say at the enzymological level, like VMAX and KM, the reason I'm bringing up, we're going to get to that, <clears throat> that the epigenetic signatures haven't even been introduced yet, but that they, using the same network, that endomembranous network, where there is an alteration of lipid synthesis, membrane lipid wrath mobilization of polypeptides, and coordinated reorganization of gene expression in either a tumor or in a lymphatic cell or an innate immune cell like a macro is going to then result in an entirely new network of activity. 
And why I'm saying that that is not a true paradox is the last statement I made. Nevertheless, this occurs all the time in living systems, you see. If it was a paradox, what would you end up with? There'd be no synthesis. You'd have thesis, antithesis, silence, you see. That's a true paradox because basically you're generated a contradiction, right? But when you do the synthesis, that means there was no true paradox. They were only contrarian. So ultimately, my thesis today, not the same thesis I was using to drive this pseudo-paradox, but the final thesis I'm using today is that indeed epigenetic modification and normal canonical control over gene expression are at worst contrarian, meaning that we can understand the classical control over gene expression. We can understand the epigenetic control over gene expression, but we're not quite ready yet. And I don't think there's any way we can ever fully describe some kind of biological pattern recognition that could be turned into a law. Because everything about epigenetics is everything about living systems. That there is always event ontology. There is always change in final result. And even the cycling we talk about, like with malic enzyme, the pyruvate to malic, malic activities or, or, or concentrations, either in the cytosol or in the mitochondria. They call them cycles in the literature, but they're not cycles because every time you move through that system, everything changes over time. Hence, it's not substrate ontology, event ontology. And don't I always say that? Okay. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, 22 March, 2023. Bye for now.